This episode of the Council of the First Ones was recorded on November 10th, 2019. And welcome to another episode of the Council of the First Ones. I'm your host, Kelly, from Nerds on the Couch. Joining me today, I have Master Rex. Good evening. Sean. Hi, glad to be back again, guys. David. Hello, great to be here. And also my best friend, Renee. Oh, that makes me (laughs) feel warm, Kelly. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So excited. And we actually have a very special guest. Renee, would you like to introduce him? Of course, right here with us, not in the studio, of course, but listening on the line, ladies and gentlemen, we have the great, the amazing artist. I'm a huge fan of his work. He has worked on tons of things, tons of movies, of course. We in the community here know him for Masters of the Universe movie designs and such. The William Stout Collection will be coming out. Hopefully sometime in our lives by Super 7. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. We have the amazing William Stout. Thank you for being here, sir. Hey, my pleasure. I, I love stuff like this. <laughs> Although, i, I got to ask you, it's the Council of what? Council the of the First Ones. One. Council of the First Ones. That sounds like uh, a sort of a cross between H.P. Lovecraft and the Illuminati. No, I'm I'm up for both of those. (laughs) No, actually, it comes from the Shira episode where uh, she had to get her sword of protection repaired, and she discovers about the first ones of Etheria. Oh, nice, cool. And we are kind of the secret society. We watch and everything. Yeah, we kind of help talk to people. (laughs) One of the things I, I wanted to mention here. It's just how fascinating uh, it is looking at your career. And we have a lot of artists, you know, a few of us here are artists, and the the artwork for Master of the Universe is so diverse and amazing. You know, if you go to the community sites, uh, people are so inspired by it, and you inspired a lot of artists uh, with them. So one of the start-off questions I always like to ask uh, when we have guests here is how did you get involved in art, uh, especially in your designs? What what inspired you? Involved what in, got you into it? How I got involved in, in what? In the film? Uh, how or, did you get involved my, yeah, in film? Or my career in general? Well, let's start with your career. Okay. Uh, I was going to be a doctor. Uh, I was uh-huh. a science math major in high school. And uh, my goal was to be a gynecologist. And my first year at high school was fantastic. I went to Reseda High School in the San Fernando Valley. Got a fantastic education. And then my family moved to the Thousand Oaks area. And I went to Thousand Oaks High School where I was getting a horrible, horrible education. I wasn't learning anything. And uh, most of the teachers were there on tenure. They didn't care if they taught the kids or not. And so I was determined to educate myself. And so I used to skip the pep rally which were mandatory at my school and hide out in the library and try to educate myself and I used to get detention for that on a regular basis finally I thought you know I'm going to graduate I'm going to be two years behind everybody else in college what else do I like to do I like to draw so I very last semester of high school I changed my major to art my family was dirt dirt poor there's no way they could even send me to a community college but fortunately for me I got perfect scores on my SATs and the state of California gave me a full four-year scholarship to any university I wanted to go to in the country. Wow. So and my my friends in high school said, are you crazy? You're, you're going to go to an art school? You can go to Harvard or Yale. But uh, I picked uh, California Institute of the Arts, which I think at that time was probably the best art school in the country. The head of the music department was Ravi Shankar. The animation department was taught by Disney's Nine Old Men. The head of the illustration department, Hal Kramer, was the first uh, president for the Society of Illustrators. Uh, The fashion department was run by Edith Head, who has won more Oscars for costumes than any person in history. And so it was an embarrassment of riches. It was really extraordinary. And they had a great see in the illustration department, which was if you got any real jobs on the outside, you could turn them in and move your homework. So my last two years of art school, almost everything I was turning in was professional work. So it made the transition from academia to the real world almost seamless. It was fantastic. The first stuff that I did, I I took any job that came around during that period. And so I did the very first, uh, worked on the very first advertising in this country for Toyota. 
and for Taco Bell. Uh, Taco oh. Bell had me doing posters showing uh, clean white people enjoying Mexican food and, and showing <laughs> the, the Midwesterners that it was safe to eat. <laughs> seriously, seriously. That's wow. pretty awesome. Well, over here well, in El Paso, I don't know whether to thank you or curse you for that. <laughs> <laughs> that was back when, I remember it, uh, it was 25 cents each for a taco at Taco Bell or five for a buck. Obviously, those days are long. <laughs> wow. I was always interested in making money. I put myself through art school uh, by painting watercolor portraits in Disneyland in New Orleans Square. I was doing about 80 portraits a day. We were paid by commission, so the more portraits I did, the more money I made. I was making more money than my dad. <laughs> wow. And it, was, it usually gave me enough money to last me about nine months out of summer. Wow. And I'd have to scramble and find some other work. But uh, that was actually a fantastic job because I was doing so many portraits per day. There were watercolor portraits. I really got to know what watercolor could do. And it also uh, enhanced my speed and gave me more confidence in my line. When I started out, I had the typical sort of scratchy line that most amateur artists have. But by the end of the summer, I drew with absolute confidence without any hesitation whatsoever. So it was terrific. Now, is that your favorite form of media, working with watercolors? When I see your art, I was always trying to... What techniques did you use, you know, and mm-hmm. I could kind of see your design. You were really good with details. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I Thank keep you. thinking. When I see your artwork, how is it that you come up with your ideas first? How do you conceptualize? Uh, I do a whole series of thumbnails first, uh, you know, post stamp size. Uh, that'll give me my design and my composition and perhaps the solution to whatever problem that's been handed. And sometimes I'll do 50, sometimes I'll do 100. In one class that I had, I think it was my first year at art school, I had uh, advertising design Tuesday and Thursday. And Tuesday, we would be given the assignment to do, I think, two ads. Each ad, we had to show that we had done, I think, at least 500 thumbnails with with solutions to the problem. Then on Thursday, we'd get four ads, and we'd also have to show 500 thumbnails. So that was another 2,000 thumbnails. And I'm really happy that that was my first class at school because everything after that was so much easier. (laughs) That was a tremendous work burden. But, uh, boy, it taught me to be fearless. And it also taught me that uh, the first idea you come up with may not be the best. It might be idea number 68. Mm-hmm. So I, I still sort of follow Mr. Sal, that. I was curious. Yes. What's that? Mr. Sal, I was curious about your specialty in paleontological art. How did that come about for you? Was that early in your career? Yeah, well, actually really early. Uh, it came about because when I was three years old, my parents took me to see my first movie. Uh, this was before anybody had TV or anything. This was 1952. And they took me to see the 19, uh, the 1952 re-release of the original 1933 King Kong. And I think it did damage at a genetic level because I've been nuts <laughs> about dinosaurs ever since. And shortly after that, I saw the Rite of Spring sequence in Fantasia. And so that, that really sparked my interest in dinosaurs. And I was drawing dinosaurs uh, in the third grade and stuff and learning about them. I've always had a passion for dinosaurs. And in the mid-1970s, my friend Don Glute, he had written a book called The Dinosaur Dictionary. But there had been so many new dinosaurs found since the publication of that book uh, that he decided it was time to revise it. And his goal was to have at least one image per listing. And I agreed to do four, and that turned into 44. (laughs) And as I was drawing these, I, I thought, you know, these had better be accurate. This might be the only picture of this animal that the public ever gets to see, so, so it should be accurate. So I joined the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology of Dinosaur Scientists to stay current on all the latest dinosaur information. And also, uh, I met a lot of these great paleontologists, and when I would do a reconstruction, I would try to find the guy who actually found that animal. And this was before email, so we would use snail mail. I would uh, send him Xeroxes of my sketches and get feedback and until we were both happy with, with the final result. Uh, around 1978, my publish, my, one of my regular publishers, Byron Price, was visiting New York. And he said, Bill, if you could do your own book on anything, what would you do? And I thought he was just being conversational. I really didn't have a answer. But he saw all these dinosaur dictionaries drawing all over my studio. And he said, would you like to do one on dinosaurs? And I said, sure, that'd be fun. I forgot about it. And until two months later, he called me up. He said, Bill, we got our book deal. Bantam wants to do your dinosaur book. Suddenly, I had this gigantic project. Oh, wow. In my- <laughs> and originally, it was going to be, I think, uh, 50 color illustrations and uh, 20 black and white. And I started, well, I, I sort of pulled a trick on 
on the publisher. Uh, I was doing the color illustrations, but I also did some of the black and white illustrations in full color. And they said, hey, that was supposed to be a black and white illustration. I said, well, I'll just run it in black and white. And they said, no, it's too beautiful. We've we got to run it in color. So <laughs> by the, the time I finished the book, the 50 color illustrations became 80, and the 20 black and white illustrations became 50. And so it was a heavily packed book. And it was the right book at the right time. This is when the public's idea of dinosaurs, that they were slow, they were stupid, they were sluggish, their tails dragged on the ground. And I was finding out all this new information, know that they were intelligent, they took care of the family, their tails were elevated. And it was a way for me to present all this new information to the public in one package instead of the drips uh, that was trickling down into the public consciousness. And so the book became a bestseller. And What's Life the name Magazine of the book? Did a, oh, book is The Dinosaurs, A Fantastic New View of a Lost Era. Oh, thank you. And it has yeah, I'm going to have to look it cover. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got an Art Nouveau color, color or cover. And at that time, I really didn't have my own style. I was known in Los Angeles as, as the guy who could duplicate any style. Uh, one of my first movie poster jobs for a film called Spies. Rick Meyerowitz, who was the National Lampoon artist, had done the poster for Spies, which was the Elliot Gould, Donald Sutherland. And he had blown the caricature of Elliot Gould and of the leading lady, who was Zuzu. And he refused to change it. So they shipped the art to Los Angeles and had me redraw Elliot Gould and Zuzu in Rick's style, but make it look, you know, identifiable as them. And so I was doing something. I was doing something similar with the dinosaur book. Uh, I thought, well, what if uh, Andrew Wyeth painted dinosaurs? What would that look? And so I would do a, a dinosaur piece that sort of aped his style. Or Arthur Rackham, what would he do if he was doing dinosaurs? Edmund Dulac, all my favorite artists. I was experimenting and trying to duplicate their styles and draw dinosaurs because I thought that would keep it interesting for me and for the public if there was a lot of different styles, not one style consistent through the book. But eventually, the deadline was looming so heavily, I didn't have time keep doing that so i just just powered through the rest of the illustrations and out of that style first time on a fireball style i said mr south did you have a particular favorite dinosaur oh it's always been the tyrannosaurus rex plus i also like the styracosaurus because i love that big head shield when i was a kid i was really heavy into dinosaurs that was like my first love and i wanted to be a paleontologist when i grew up mm-hmm. and uh that was actually my favorite dinosaur too was the the t-rex and then as I got older, I thought the Triceratops really had a cool look, so that's like my favorite now. <laughs> yeah, I've got the skull of the longest T-Rex skull ever found in my living room. Really? Wow. wow. So cool. it's, it's a cast of the one at the uh, Natural History Museum. Right now. Nice. But it's, uh, it pretty much dominates the living room. Is that and, like I, a... and I used to have it when I was living in an apartment, and boy, it took up most of the living room. And when I had to have parties, there are these two big scoops in the back of the skull. That's where the neck muscles attached. And I would line those with foil, and I'd have uh, tortilla chips and guacamole in there. Oh, man, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And you did do an update, right, on the uh, dinosaur book? Yes, it was called The New Dinosaurs. And then also since then I've done a book called Dinosaur Discoveries, which is 61 new found in the last 20 Oh, i got to be checking that out. Did a kids version of that book called uh, Dinosaurs A to Z. New Dinosaurs A to Z. Continuing to. Keep. I'm also really passionate about Antarctica, and I'm working on it, which, when it's finished, will be the first visual history of life in Antarctica from earliest prehistoric times to the present. It's going to have 100 oil paintings, and I'm up to about two. Oh, so wow. that's. Oh wow. Finish. You're keeping mm-hmm. very active. Yeah. Huh. Well, the one follow-up we got to ask is like you went from doing dinosaurs which again your creatures were always amazing and then you jumped to movies how did you do that oh well uh i once wrote an article for the magazine prehistoric times called uh the 10 rules of being a paleo artist and rule number one is keep your day job there's just not, <laughs> <laughs> there's just not enough work out there to sustain a person doing what we call paleo art so those jobs are few and far between and, and rare and even rarer is doing murals that's my favorite kind of work though of everything that i do is doing accurate constructions of prehistoric life as murals beyond but you know either the building has to be undergoing a change or they're building a wing or revamping the whole thing so that doesn't happen very often world but i jump at the chance murals i can't remember what your question was <laughs> Yeah, I was like asking how you jumped from movies. Oh, oh, because oh. you got into so, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay, so I was I was actually I was always gravitating towards whatever paid the most, and it and I very pretty 
quickly found out in the 1970s that uh, the two highest paying jobs for illustrators were annual reports and movie posters. And I, I wasn't sophisticated enough to be doing those out of my But Boy, movie posters, I'm a huge motion picture fan. And plus, I've also been really good at, at drawing likenesses, which is really important for these stars. So uh, it was George Lucas who actually really launched me in the movie poster business. Uh, I did the very first uh, commercial exploitation of Star Wars. I did a 22 Coca-Cola cup design for Burger King. Oh. And George never forgot that. And so he hired me wow. to... He, uh, they were going to re-release American Graffiti, and George insisted that I be the artist to do the new art for the re-release. And the, the advertising company was dead set against having me do that because I, they didn't know who I was. I was an untested quantity. They didn't know if I could make deadlines. They didn't know if my work was good enough. But Lucas insisted it. He said it had to be me or, or nothing. And so they hired me. They took a chance and hired me, and they were extremely pleased with the work that I did. And from that moment on, I was business. I start. I wor- ended up working on the ad campaign. Whoa, <laughs> and, 120. Yeah. Now oh that business, you would think, would be associated with making motion pictures, but they're two completely separate businesses, and they never ever cross over. So I, I had a, a real interest in making because uh, I was curious as to how they're... And a friend of mine was working as a production assistant on Conan the Barbarian. And he said, Bill, you've got to come and see what's being done. I went, Ron Cobb is the production. He's doing some fantastic stuff. Now, I was really intrigued because I knew Ron Cobb is a political cartoonist. He did underground political panels for the LA Free Press, which got distributed all over the country and then later all over the world. And I thought, wow, this guy is like a political cartoonist and he's designing Conan. Now, I had read all the Conan as a big robbery. So I was curious to see what, what this guy would be doing with Conan. But I was so busy doing movie posters, there was no way I could break away into Conan. Finally, I got a little break in my schedule. But instead of doing that, going over to see the Conan art, I went to the ABA. That's the American Booksellers Association. And it was an event that used to take place every year, uh, usually alternate between New York and L.A., and that year it happened to be in Los Angeles. And it, it is every single publisher and editor in the entire continental United States. Wow. And it's a great place for an illustrator like me to go pick up work. I just take my portfolio with me from booth to booth to booth, and I could pick up enough work for the rest of the year. So I decided to do that instead of visiting the Conan offices. And as soon as I got there, the first person I ran into was Ron Cobb. And he told me that he had this agreement with John Millius, the writer-director, that uh, John had veto power over anybody that Ron wanted to bring into the art department. Ron had veto power over anybody John Millius wanted to bring in. So he asked me if I would be kind enough to leave my portfolio at the Conan office for John to see. And I thought, well, that might be easier made, plus it was only for a couple weeks. So I did that. I came in, I think it was a Friday, and Millius happened to be there, and he looked through my portfolio while I I was standing there, and there was a story I'd done for Heavy Metal, uh, Harlan Ellison's called Shatter Like a Glass Goblin, that he had read when it was originally printed in him, that he just, and it was, he quickly went through the rest of my book, handed it back to me, and started to walk out the door, and John's a sort of bigger-than-life character. And as he was going through the doorway, he turned and said, hire him. Uh, so nice. I went, in, I went in to talk to our line producer, Buzz Feichens, and he told me what I would be making on Conan. And I nearly fell off the chair laughing because it was about 10% of what I was making in advertising. But I thought, well, it's just for two weeks. It'll be fun to see a movie. So I found out later that whenever you're hired on a film, you're always hired for weeks. They want to find out if you're a jerk or not. If you're a jerk, then after the two weeks is over, your job's over. But if you're not, they keep you on. So I, the two weeks on Conan turned into two years and turned into a film career. When I started there, our receptionist was Kathleen Kennedy, and we were oh, sharing wow. offices with Steven Spielberg. His <laughs> office was right across from my office. Wow. And so Ron Cobb and I would work on Conan during the day, 6 o'clock, put our pencils down, and run across the aisle to Steven's office where we'd kick around ideas for Steven's next project, which was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, wow. So I thought it was always going to be like that. <laughs> naively uh, but uh, man it, that was really what put me into the film but I started out doing storyboards on Conan and then 
gradually began doing uh, designs for all the stuff that Ron Cobb did not have time. And the second Conan film, the Dino De Laurentiis family started grooming to become a production. Within oh, about two years of my getting into the business, I, I had become a production, one of the fastest. But I found out later that the film business is really tiny and there's so much money at stake. If you can deliver, the word gets out really fast. And from that moment on, every January, I'd have five and seven films offered me and I'd just try to figure out which one would be the best. Is your blade dull? You getting tired? Not getting to the point? Come to Trap Draws Blade Service. We'll get you sharpened up real quick. Now, since you jumped to becoming a production designer, could you explain the the process, your process, of how you accepted that? I'm usually the first person hired by a director on a film. Uh, for those out there who don't know what a production designer is, he is the eyes of the director. As a production designer, I'm responsible for everything you see on the screen except for the performances of the actors. So I'm in charge of all the special effects, all the sets, all the set decoration, all the props, makeup, special makeup and all. So the I always start out, the first thing is reading the script. First of all, that tells me if I want to do the movie or not. If it's a lousy script, I... Uh, but I'll read the script, and then I'll read the script a second time to make sure I got it. And then a third time I'll read it, and I'll make I'll start making notes, and I'll make a, all the sets that are going to end up being in the film. And that gives me a, a, an idea of how realistic their budget is. You know, if, if it's got 80 or 90 sets and the budget's uh, $10 million, I know they don't know what they're doing. So... And then I'll decide which of the scenes are the most important scenes, the high points in the film. And I'll do a series of paintings of those scenes. And what that does, that puts everybody on the same page. Because when you read a script, you can interpret it however you want. But when you start seeing visuals, when you start seeing paintings, you go, oh, this is the kind of movie we're making. Oh, it's going to be this. It's going to be this elaborate or this simple. Uh, and so... That gets the people excited, too. It gets the investors excited when they can see pictures of what the movie's going to They get thrilled, and they, it gives them more confidence in investing in the film. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, this process you described. And so how did you go about choosing to work on Masters of the Universe? Well, Masters kind of chose me. I was hired. I wasn't hired <laughs> to be the production designer. I was hired to be the storyboard artist. Oh, that's right, right. And then the, and pers- the, the production designer left. What, what had happened was I was doing uh, storyboards, and the director, Gary Goddard and I, we hit it off immediately. Uh, we, we had so many shared interests, one of which was uh, Jack Kirby. And oh, wow. so right. very quickly we developed a shorthand. Uh, if Gary would say, Bill, can you Kirby this character up a little bit? I know exactly <laughs> what he was talking about. I didn't have to ask him what that meant. Mm-hmm. Whereas the production designer, Jeff Kirkland, who was from England, had no knowledge of this arena, no knowledge of comic books, no knowledge of, of any of the stuff that Gary was talking about. So he and Gary were constantly butting heads. Oh, really? And uh, huh. Gary was this amazing pitch man, one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, and he could sell snow to Eskimos, just uh, <laughs> amazing. And one day he was taking all the Mattel brass around the different department to show them the progress on the film. And he saved the best for last. He saved the art department for last. And they came came into the room and they looked like kids in a candy shop. Their eyes just lit up when they saw all this beautiful artwork and designs and stuff going into their characters. They were absolutely thrilled and and Gary ended his little spiel on a high point and then turned to Jeffrey Kirkland for affirmation and Jeffrey looked up and said, it's not going to be too fuckful. Which totally burst the balloon <laughs> that, that Gary had been pumping up. And about two weeks later, Jeff uh, left the film and he recommended that I take it over. Now, I got to ask you on this. Sure. When uh, you jumped to Masters of the Universe, that was a property that was already established, like Conan, but Conan was had a little bit different artists and all that. You coming in here, they had the toys and all that. How familiar were you? Did they. Again, did they want the toys? Because I know it's kind of legendary, the struggles you're, you're kind of hinting oh my on. God. Yeah, did well, they, interesting how did they want to do it? Well, what was interesting is that there's a real connection to Conan and that Mattel had purchased the rights to do Conan as toys, as action figures. And then they were horrified to find out that the first Conan film was going to be R-rated. So <laughs> now that they, they had the job of producing toys for an R-rated film, toys that the kids couldn't even, couldn't even see. So uh, they dropped the license, and they created their own series of, of basically Conan-style stuff, which was called Masters. Now, and I was familiar with the toys. I'd seen the toys, and I was actually I was 
pretty disappointed by a lot of the toys because they cheaped out. They used a lot of sort of inter interchangeable arms and torsos and stuff. Instead of making each toy distinctly unique, which, which I think they should have, they didn't. Plus, uh, He-Man himself looked like a member of ABBA, which was <laughs> not, not very cool looking. And so uh, fortunately for me, one of my dearest best friends and also one of the greatest artists in my own history, uh, Jean Giraud, also known as Mobius, was working in Santa Monica at the time, and I hired him to do a couple of key things for me on Masters. The first thing was, I said, Jean, can you do me a redesign of He-Man? And he did this brilliant, oh my God, it was just incredible. And he, he gave it a lot of thought like he does with everything. And his his process being this, his solution to the problem was, okay, they're on a world war there in, in Eternia, and so there's lots of destruction. So what He-Man is doing is he's picking up pieces of gear and vehicles and, and equipment and stuff and strapping it to his body like armor. And I thought, that is great, because they don't have time to sit there and have someone make a full suit of armor and scratch. They're, they're in a war situation. So that started making it much more realistic for me. I thought, this is... It, well, my, my thought has always been, if I don't believe in what I'm doing, I can't expect the audience. But if I believe in it, there's there's a really good head start. And there's a good chance that the audience will come with me. Well, and in a previous uh, interview, you talked about how you need to make the character believable to yourself first. And right. so you would give the these designs, these characters, background stories. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That was something I, I learned from actors. Uh, most of the really great actors I've worked with, uh, they will write their own little mini histories of the character that they're playing, even though that is nothing that is in the script, but it gives them something to draw from. And I feel the same way about that. I look at each character and I would write little mini histories of who they were before the scenes in the movie started, how they, where they grew up, how they, what they came from, what the relationships were like with the other characters. And that helps to make it much more real for me and hence much more real for the audience. Were there any characters that you especially found uh, to be interesting to, to work with? Well, I wish Sorad hadn't been killed off so fast. <laughs> he was one of, we one of all my favorites. By bad, the dinosaur, right? Yeah. Elizabeth. Oh, man. He yeah, was he so, was the interesting one. Beautiful yeah. design. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I even designed the contact lenses for the actor. Wow. Very nice. Now, uh, coming into that, you know, I mean, I was like always curious because I got your Skeletor. Uh, I, bought, I got your designs. And I always, as a kid, I saw yours in the magazine, in the Master Universe magazine. Sure. And I saw that He-Man one and I was like, wow, that was so cool. That was just so awesome how you talked about you had the pieces of armor and all that. Yeah. And you always said you had a story behind it. And for him was picking up the armor. What was your story with like the other ones? Like with, uh, uh, you did, uh, I was thinking of Skeletor one because you, mm -hmm. you talked about giving him technology. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's, uh, it, it was an interesting kind of technology in, throughout the whole film and that it was a mixture of sort of sword and sorcery, but with high tech. And so I, my goal was to blend those two into a, sort of a, a believable world where, yes, they're fighting with swords, but there, there might be lightning coming out of the sword or electricity or, or something else. And so that, again, that was making it real for me and, and sort of trying to make everything deeper uh, so that, well, one of the things I love is I love making films that you can go back to over and over again and see new stuff each time. And you don't get that unless you heavily layer what's going on, on the screen. And so that, that's always been something important to me. It also helps the actors, too. For instance, Julie, who was played by Courtney Cox, uh, I designed her, her bedroom, and I decided that, that she was sort of an amateur artist. So I had some of her drawings and stuff posted on the wall. And there's a dresser, and I filled the dresser with all the things that I thought would be precious to her, including her, her clothes and stuff, but also just little items that she had collected from her youth. And then after that was done, uh, Courtney hadn't been on the set yet. And I was there the, the first day she walked on set, and she walked into her bedroom, and she was just looking all around. And I could, she was, I could see she was really fascinated by what I had done with her room and how it was informing her as to who her character was. And then she opened the drawer and found that the drawers were not empty. They were full of her stuff, her character stuff. And she just lit up. And I could see I'd, I'd really touched her. And that uh, it, it just made her performance much more believable. 
Has your property been destroyed in a recent battle? Contact the Mighty Lawyer. Even He-Man and Skeletor fear the Mighty Lawyer. You'll be taken care of. I was going to ask you, one of your characters that always stood out to me uh, in your artwork and all that uh, was the Beastman character. Now, Beastman was established in the cartoons. He was right. one of the core uh, Masters Universe characters, you know, that we absolutely expected to see him. But of course, you know, his design was his toy design was a little different than how you got yours. And I love right. your sketches on him. And so what inspired you to make those character designs on Beastman? Well, I, I wanted him to be believable as, well, to me, the, the people that Skeletor assembled, the Beastman and Karg and, and Sorod and Blade, were representative warriors of their own individual communities or their worlds. And so the Beastman, he was, he was representative of a whole race of Beastmen. And that's why if you look at the, the pants that he's wearing, there are handprints on the pants. And my idea was that prior to his leaving to join Skeletor's forces, all his generals lined up and they put their hands in ink and then they each touched his pants to give him their power symbolically. And to me, that that's an implication of the culture that he came from and what they believed in. So for me, again, it was making it deeper and much more real for myself and it's for the audience. Wow, I this, never knew that. Yeah, the thoughts that... Um, Mr. Stout. They, yep. Yeah, Rex. Mm-hmm. Yes, Mr. Stout. I was uh, curious about your design for Karg. Sure. Yeah, he's, his face is based upon a bat. I'm fascinated by bats. They have such a, a rich variety of uh, facial adornment and stuff, and I thought it would be cool. Uh, and I also thought it would be cool if, if, unlike the big guys like the Beast Man, here's this little guy who represented his own uh, culture and stuff. Did you um, draw any influence from Trapjaw from the Master Universe comics and uh, cartoons for Clark's character? Uh, no. I, I wasn't aware of those guys. Karg was, in my mind, it was just uh, we needed an, a new character who was not yet in the Mattel universe. And so I came up with Blade and with Karg and with Sauron. I found Karg kind of interesting because for the character designs, he was just mm-hmm. fascinating. He had the big bushy hair, kind of right. like a lion's mane. And he was missing a hand, you yeah. know, which, again, I always imagined there would be a story behind that. And he did have, you know, in the costumes, he did have technology, like, attached to him mm-hmm. and all that. And I always, like, wondered, you know, how did that, you know, what was the story behind that, you know? Well, the technology, I mean, all the, to me, all the characters in Eternia had access to technology. But just like the world that we live in, some people have more access to it and some people have less access to it. There are uh, groups of people and, and governments and stuff that... Uh, Basically, they, they keep the high-tech stuff to themselves, and it doesn't trickle down to their, their people, unlike the United States, where almost everybody I know has their cell phone or a laptop or both. Yeah, well, that's why I found it fascinating, because with him, he had more technology. And the other character you mentioned, which was my favorite, uh, Blade. I love Blade. He had little. You know, he was all weapons. Right. Yeah. And that's what I found fascinating. Blade. <laughs> yeah. And it was just it was just fascinating because, you know, I spoke to Anthony the longest a few years ago. Same con I met. Yeah, that I met you. You know, he spoke, you know, of how fascinated he was because he first saw your design and then they worked with a costume and the costume was a little different. But he was just absolutely fascinated about how angular and how, you know, blade themed he was, you know, not no pun intended. But, yeah. you know, he almost looked like a living knife. Was that your idea for that character? Yes, it was. And it, it's funny because I worked with Anthony on two films. Uh, the very first film I ever wrote was called The Warrior and the Sorceress. It was produced by Roger Corman. And Anthony was in that film, and he did all this, the training of, uh, for all the sword fights. He was the stunt coordinator for all the sword fights as well as being in the film. And he was he fulfilled that same role on Masters of the Universe. He, he was in charge of making the sword fights look good. And that was if I could jump in real quick with a question, my um, sure. it, your thoughts on the individual characters, I, it, I, basically, I would actually love to just read a notebook that you had written for this or something, because the, it, like those bios really are showing you put 
a lot more thought into these than maybe could have been on the screen and everything. And I, I think that would have been amazing to pick your brain a lot more about that. And I guess the one character that I'm most curious about when it comes to your thoughts on it, because he did have a little bit more of a startling difference between the versions we might have known versus the movie was He-Man. And the reason being is in this version, the, it, my take on it is he's just, you look at him as he's a warrior and he's, a, he's just a right. warrior. He's a hero. And it's not like in the filmation cartoon where, you know, he lifts the sword and says, by the power of Grayskull, and he goes from Adam to He-Man. What, right. what is your take of that for this movie? And is that something that you feel maybe off screen he did where he did the transformation or was he just, he's just a warrior hero throughout the thing and he does not turn into anybody else. He's just He-Man all the time. The second part, I, I, there was nothing in the script to indicate that there was any kind of transformation. And okay. I always start with the script. The script is my Bible. Okay. And so, um, but to me, he, he was exactly, as you said, a warrior, but also a hero. He represented hope for his people. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was really crucial. Uh, whatever happened to him, you know, happened to everybody. So he was the guy that they, that the, his entire culture pinned their hope on. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, one that I was always fascinated with that I didn't know until years later when I saw your uh, sketchbooks and uh, cards came out from you was that you designed Shira. And right. her, yeah, des- her got- could you talk a little bit about her design? Sure. Uh, she were, was originally a key part of the film, and she got cut for budget reasons, uh, but not before I had designed her, her costume. And uh, I wanted her to look like a warrior, but also feminine at the same time. And I, I dressed her in, in white and gold because I wanted, I, I tried to assign a different color to each character so that uh, as soon as they were on screen, you recognized who they were before you could even recognize their face. I had fun designing that, that costume and also with the, the big blonde hair. Well, it was kind of 80s. Mm-hmm. So you know, I was always like, yeah, think, it was a little bit Beverly Hills too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because I I know that the toy design, she's gold, and she does have that white. And so vaguely, I can kind of see the toy Mm -hmm. in her. And I kept thinking, you know, was there somebody you had in mind when you did that design? Because I was like, oh, she looked kind of familiar. Well, actually, uh, I was thinking of of high-fashion models. What if they were warriors? The the (laughs) one female character I really had someone in mind for was Eva Lynn. For me, uh, she was the Norma Desmond character in Sunset Boulevard, uh, the Billy Wilder. Yeah. Uh, that was my point of departure ending her. And if you look at the very first drawing I did of her, she has that sort of look in her eyes, malevolent, a sort of malevolent command. Now, did, when you designed her first, did you know that Meg Foster was going to be her? I don't remember, but boy, incredible actress. My, one of my, I only have about two main regrets that film that I didn't fight hard enough to keep her that big bushy man of hair that I designed for her. Uh, I think for me, uh, long hair in a woman is power. And by not having, I thought it diminished. The other thing that bothered me, uh, the design of the stormtroopers. to me, they just look like the star Wars stormtroopers, except instead of white, they were black. And I had nothing to do with that design. And I fought against it as hard as I could, but it stayed in <laughs> Well, you know, aside from I, I understand that uh, about a third of the movie was cut, that you yeah. had uh, yeah, that's a bunch of in almost every film I've worked mm-hmm. on, and a bunch of uh, material that that was to take place on Eternia was cut. Right. Uh, and I understand as well that Snake Mountain was designed, but that was cut as well. Could you talk right. just briefly about Snake Mountain and what else was cut? Um. <laughs> Sorry, we're picking your brains, yeah. Going back over almost 40 years. Yeah. Well, as I said, typically on every film that I've worked on, usually about a third of gets cut. That happened on Conan the Barbarian. About a third of what was in the script of Conan got cut. And the the same thing for Masters of the Universe. They very quickly decided they did not have an enough money in the budget to build Eternia. So the scene, so most of the film takes place on Earth uh, as a budget-saving measure. Uh, but before that, I, I had designed Eternia. I designed uh, all the stuff that was in the original. I was sorry to see it go, but I wasn't surprised. Now, one I wanted to talk point out was my favorite that I got from you. Uh, when I write my uh, Motu stories and all that, I always pictured uh, Snake Mountain's throne room 
a little different than, of course, the cartoons and a little more gloom. And then at the con, I saw your design of the Snake Mountain throne room, and I was just absolutely blown away how beautiful it was. And was he that had the like a, all the lava. Yeah, he had like a lava yeah. with a throne. And can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Was my favorite. Sure. The, the actual the architecture was based upon uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture for a hotel he designed in Tokyo, and I just uh, took all the light stone that he that he was using in the building of them, turned it into very dark stone. And then I love the idea of, of, it's almost as if Skeletor lives in hell with all that hot lava surrounding. And it was an indication of, yeah, this is really the underworld. This is his domain. And it, it didn't, uh, Eternia, I designed with a lot of curves and with a lot of softness. And whereas uh, Skeletor's world inside Snake Mountain was very jagged with sharp edges, uh, something that I wanted it to scare the audience. I thought, boy, when He-Man goes into this domain, really taking a gigantic chance with his own just by by being. And I wanted to convince that. You know, I, I'm very curious. Well, one, uh, the original script that, that has everything that was cut out, uh, mm-hmm. is that something that people can get a hold of? Or is that no kind of locked away somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've probably still got my copy, but I don't, most of that stuff generally does not get public view. I see. I mean, if, if you want to read the scariest thing you've ever read, read the original screenplay to John Carpenter's mm-hmm. The Thing. It's it's twice, if not four times, as scary as almost. <laughs> Nice. And, and uh, you know, I remember watching the fantastic interview with uh, you and Joe Amato and Tyler, and I was... And you were showing off that um, artwork of the uh, barbecue restaurant. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering, like, you must have quite a bit of that artwork that perhaps none of us have even seen before. Is there any... 98% of all the art from Masters. I I keep that on on every film. I I always keep mm -hmm. my original. And how can that be shared with the public in the form I'm of a doing book? A multi, or... I'm doing a multi-volume autobiography. Uh, and, well, I've got a big book out now, which is, covers my 50-year career as a working artist, Fantastic Worlds, The Art of William Stout. And oh, each wonderful. chapter is devoted to a different aspect of my career. There's a chapter on my film design, chapter on my comics work, chapter on Antarctica, chapter on dinosaurs, chapter on music-related art. So now I'm in the process of doing a book that size. Uh, I should tell you the size of the book. It's over 300 pages over 500. Oh, nice. So I'm doing a book that size on each of those chapters now. So there will be at least one, if not two books on my film design since I've kept all the art. And my goal is to have uh, all or nearly all of that art finally published, a book on And uh, I said it's a multi-volume autobiography. It's not just the art of, but it, I also talk about what was going on in my life at the time and how it ends. So I, I think the... The volume that will have all the masters pretty interesting to make. Oh, I, I can't wait. I can't okay. wait to see it. Just thinking about it now, how much your career has spent when we researched you. How how has art changed for you, uh, you know, in all these years? <laughs> how has the innovation, you know, how, how has it been from you now that you've seen when you first started to how it is now? You know, aside well, from computer-based, obviously, but, yeah. you know, how is... Yeah, because when I first started, there was no computer art. It was just, actually, computer art was just being introduced, I think, my third or fourth year at arts. The very first computer programmers who had created anything that you could create art with invited us to come to where their offices and just play, because they knew we would come up with stuff that they wouldn't even think of by just playing was an art tool. One of the things that uh, sort of shocked me, my two biggest sources of income don't exist anymore, movie posters and uh, theme park. Movie posters now are all Photoshop. Uh, theme parks, boy, it used to be an entire floor at Universal. It's not even a chair. And one of the things I found out is that, that is really consistent with the history of illustration. In the 1940s, uh, magazine illustrators were wiped out by the use of photography. And that change is the only constant in life. And boy, in illustration, the job you have today may not even exist in 10 years. And in 10 years, there may be jobs that don't even exist now that be revealed as a result of, of technologies and time. So that's, that's the biggest thing I've, I've had to deal with is the fact that uh, everything changes. And uh, But 
I think being a freelancer makes you sort of adaptable. To I remember when I was living in Hollywood, the manager of my apartment, he said, Bill, I don't know how you do it. It's freelance. You never know where your next job is coming. He said, thank God I've got a steady job. At well, guess what happened to him? Yeah. When he got laid off at GM <laughs> with all the other workers, <laughs> man, he was out to sea. And I thought, you know what? I've got more job security than he does because I get fired every week. I can deal <laughs> with it. I always have five or six you know, balls in the, uh, just in case one of them doesn't pan out. So <laughs> I've actually got much more job security than a factory worker. Mr. Stout, I remember reading something about an article about uh, when you were working on Master of the Universe, the movie, that they seem to uh, have a lot of uh, production issues with uh, letting the staff go intermittently and rehiring. Well, the, the major problem we had was when uh, Mattel people came through one day, and, they're, and they were in the art department, and they were pointing to our pictures on the walls, uh, our designs. I said, oh, man, that's going to be Oh, look at that. That's going to be a killer toy. That's going to be great. And I stopped him. I said, gentlemen, we were hired to design the motion picture. We were not hired to design your next year's toy line. We need to renegotiate. And boy, they were stunned. They, 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 they all turned white. And, uh, and I banded, uh, got the other designers on the film that were working with me. We all decided to band together and, and form a solid front because we wanted uh, to get royalties from our designs from the toys. And so they threatened to shut the film down eight different times over that. And we just kept working until finally they, they had to give in. Well, in 2019, things haven't changed that much. Oh, I know. If anything, it's gotten worse. I wanted to ask you real quick. Was there a sure. design or something in the, well, we'll do Master's Universe, that wasn't shown that you just wish it was? There were designs I did of, of Castle Grayskull that uh, I think ended up being cooler than the ones that got you. But at a certain point, it, it's the director or the producer. What, what I always offer a variety of them choices. Sometimes they don't make the same choices I would have. I, I was just going to say really quick, on the one documentary, uh, you did mention that you weren't thrilled as much with the, the design of He-Man compared to another version that you had as a design concept for the film, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Mattel kept watering it down. Uh, I mean, ideally, I would have gone with uh, Jean Giraud's original first design, which I did mm -hmm. a, a color version. Of. To me, that was perfect. And then uh, they, they kept trying to force me to make it more look more like the toy, more like the toy, more like the toy. Uh, and I remember you, you saying how much you hated that golden one. You did like a really golden one. And yeah, that one was kind of terrible. I always <laughs> felt the... The movie one was kind of a, a compromise, mm -hmm. but I always thought that oh, it could have been more. It could have been more. You know, that's that's the one thing yeah. about the Master Universe movie. I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. Even years later, I still enjoy it, but I always look at it like it could have been more. I did what I could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at a, at a, you know it, making a film is always a, a team effort. It's a collaboration. And uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I got to point out now, you know, kind of bringing it up to today is that how we're getting the William Stout collection. From your end, could you uh, talk to us a little bit about how that came about? It's not much of a story. Uh, Super 7, or, I think they, I first met them at PowerCon. And then about a year or two later, they approached me and asked me about doing William Stout collection characters. Sure. <laughs> and that's about it. Now, did you give them your designs, or did you have to do new designs? Did you approve it? I think or? they already had the des They either already had the designs, or I've got all the designs on JPEGs and TIFFs, so I, I might have also, but they may have already had copies of them. Were they looking for specific characters, or were they just, were they telling you, you know, we'd love to get whatever you have? I think they already had in mind who they wanted. Oh, okay. So I just made sure they did. Mm. If they didn't have copies for those, those characters, right. that they got. I oh. know they were limited with their choices, but man, I wish we could get an evil Lynn, you know. And oh, me too. I, and again, your designs were just absolutely amazing. I, I too, Ashira, seeing your designs in 3D would is just would be amazing. Even your dinosaur designs, I would love oh, to cool. see them in 3D. Well, one of my most famous images is the poster I did for the animated feature Wizard. Uh, Amazing film. 
And that is coming out with a month or two as a sculpture from Sideshow Collectibles. We'll get to see that. In th- I, I did all the turnarounds. That that's turnarounds are showing the front, back, side, top. And so uh, I worked really closely with Sideshow and did a spectacular job on the sculpting. Mr. Stout, if uh, they proposed a second William Stout collection, would you release the rights for uh, Man Arms, Tila, and possibly even your select design for She-Ra to be made as a 3D design character? Sure. And Pig Boy, too. (laughs) (laughs) Power Yeah, no, I think that'd be be awesome. I'd love to have the, the entire cast. As uh, action figures, that'd be great. Well, it, it's now it's worth mentioning that it's fantastic what Super Seven was able to accomplish with your designs. Previous to that, you know, the rights were with Mattel, and and uh, my understanding is that you you didn't want to work with Mattel. Is that my is that correct? I'm really happy to work with Mattel. It was okay. It, the problem was. I, I did a long interview for the art of Master of the Universe, and I told the, the book people, I said, look, I've still got all the art. Let's use this to illustrate oh. the interview. And they were delighted. And then Mattel turned around and said, if we use that art, then we own it. And I said, well, I'm not oh. going to give you my copyrights for free. Right, right. And I said, so wow. you, can't, you can't use the art unless you oh have a different attitude. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's just unfortunate because, you know, nowadays it's just amazing how some artists are, you know, we admire their artwork. I'm thinking about some comic book artists and we're starting to see 3D sculptures of their work. And it's just amazing, you know, and I'm just thinking uh, Wizards to me, it's like an unsung movie. It never gets the praise it deserves. Now, yeah, you're right. You brought up, I know that you did the poster for it. And I do have your poster. I do. I did get that from you too. I'm always like, how amazing we are doing now with new uh, computer programming, so we can transfer 2D art into 3D art. Yeah. And do you think that's now the trend now? Like artists are expected to eventually have sculptures of their work. Do you expect to maybe see more of your work become 3D art? Oh, I, I think definitely I'll see more of my work on 3D art because uh, it's. As a sculptor myself, I can sculpt, but I am so painfully slow. I mean, this stuff would never get done in a reasonable amount of time. So I'm happy to work with with a group like Sideshow Collectible because they have fantastic sculptors on staff who can translate any of my stuff. And it's not only they do that, they do it. And so I look forward to more collaboration like that. I designed a Cthulhu Tiki mug for Mondo a couple of years that became a big seller for them. Now I'm working on a Tarman Tiki mug. Tartman is a lead zombie character. Yeah, he's the oily, yeah. gross one. Yeah, right. So I, I love doing that stuff and seeing my stuff become real. And, and actually, the first experience of that is when I started working in film, and I would do designs, set designs or prop designs and stuff like that. And then a few weeks later, boom, there they are in three dimensions being handled by actors or being lived in. by. And it was it was thrilling to see my stuff become real like that. Now I'm starting to see uh, our time is uh, coming up here, and uh, I want to uh, finish off here with a little bit. One thing I just have to let people know: you were telling me that you teach a class of uh, figure drawing every Sunday. Wow! I wish I was in California. I would have loved to take your class, sir. <laughs> You'd be welcome. It's it's on a drop-in <laughs> basis, so if you ever are out here on a weekend on a Sunday, come on by. I get to stalk him on Sundays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A quick question. Uh, did sure. Did you have any involvement in the sequel for Masters of the Universe? Um, <laughs> yeah. No. I, they wanted to take all my artwork back <laughs> to, oh. to make it, but I said no. I mean, you can hire me. And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that sequel idea was around for. I see. Well, looking back, you know, and I, I do find it curious because I've spoken to some people involved on the film. I've spoken to Gary Goddard, Mike Foster. Mm-hmm. I've spoken to Dolph Lundgren. And I want your opinion, too. Years later, you know, the movie was, well, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, how was the movie to you then? And how do you look back on it now? Do you remember, like, when it came out? Well, when it came out, I followed it really closely since I was in the film business. I wanted to see how it was doing. And then the first weekend, it did pretty darn good. And I was really happy about that. Then the second weekend, usually there's a big drop-off 
on the second weekend. But instead, it did even better the second weekend. I was like, whoa, that almost never happened. Then the third weekend, it did even better than that. And I thought, oh my God, we've got a huge hit on our hands. It's got legs and it's word of mouth is propelling it. And uh, instead of going down in attendance, it's, it's shooting up. And then suddenly it was pulled from all the theaters because Canon went bankrupt. So it never had a chance to be the big hit that I knew it was going to be. But uh, I was real, <laughs> because the production was so screwed up, Canon would not give us a cast and crew screening. So I paid for all the people in the art department to come see it in the theater with me. And I was delighted to see that we, we had a beginning, middle, and end. And, uh, <laughs> and plus, the, the, film, the film looked nice. Now, Cut to many, many, many years later, about 30 or 40 years later, they had a, set up a screening at the America Cinematheque at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. They do a lot of special screenings there where afterwards or beforehand they invite the cast and crew to have a Q&A. So I was there with uh, Chelsea Field. And we did a Q&A before the film, and then they ran the movie. And I was just delighted to see that the people, the audience was laughing in all the right places, cheering in all the right places. And when Dolph at the end says, I have the power, I thought the roof was going to come off the theater. The response was so <laughs> huge and so electric. And so it, it really told me that, that we'd done a pretty decent job. I, I was really happy with the reception. Plus, the place sold out, too. So it was a lot of people wanted to see that movie in the theater. I think I remember that screen. I missed it by a week. I was out of there by a week, and I would have given anything to have been there. And they have. They've done a Masters of the Universe showing at my college over here, uh, UTEP, University of Texas at El Paso. They had 20-year-olds. They had 18-year-olds, some high school kids go in there, and they enjoyed the movie. Oh, great. They really, they really enjoyed the movie. It's gotten to be a little better view I'm glad to see that, you know, some actors, I don't want to say who, but they kind of chagrined from it back then. But now, you know, they're including it in their booths, (laughs) part of their photos and all that. And they're kind of more freely talking about it at panels and all that. And they're actually more, they're actually proud of that movie. Yeah. And they should be. You know what? The thing that really amazes me, that's Frank Langella's favorite role of everything he's done. And he's done some spectacular work and really incredible films. But Masters of the Universe, his role as Skeletor, he thinks that's the best work he's done. And I would have to agree with him. He really brought that character to life. And he did it on constraints of having to wear a mask. But uh, he contributed so much, too. He improvised a lot of the dialogue. He pulled some Shakespeare occasionally. Boy, he, he did his absolute. He was an absolute star. Well, I, I really wanted to know very briefly if if there's any one particular project, uh, maybe a, one of the like 30 films that you were a production designer for that really stuck out in your mind, that, that really sticks out in your mind, that's your one of your all-time favorites. Well, the hardest film I've ever done was Return of the Living Dead. It's now films I'm proudest, and it has become a gigantic cult film. That film, whenever they have a it sells out in Nice. And uh, they had, I've, I was just a guest uh, at something in Hollywood. It's called the Rooftop Cinema Club. And every weekend, they you sit on the top of this building. They have all these lounge chairs, and you put on headphones, and they project the film onto a building. It's huge. They usually have, prior to the film, they have, or after them, they have uh, cast members talking about them. Did that with the living. Boy, it's great to see that on a gigantic screen. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Cause that, that's one of those films where I layered it with so many details. Unless you have a large screen, you're going to nice. little bits. So th- that film, I'm real proud of that. I'm real proud of having worked on Pan's Labyrinth, my favorite of all the movies. And uh, Conan the Barbarian, I think, turned out pretty nice. Great screenplay. I did a little bit of tiny work on Rambling Rose, film directed by a friend of mine, Martha Coolidge, uh, starring a Dern, Robert Duvall. And I think that's a fantastic I worked for two years on a Godzilla film that never got made, which uh, to this day, I would do that film in a heartbeat. It was this Fred Fred Decker wrote the greatest script for that. Was it the 3D? I had a dream art department. I had Dave Stevens and Doug Wildey doing storyboards. Dave Stevens created The Rocketeer. Doug Wildey created Johnny Quest. I had Rick Baker building me a gigantic robotic. Uh, David Allen was, was going to do the stop motion. It was the right project at the wrong time. It was obviously going to be a very expensive film, and at that time, four big-budget films bombed big time. So oh, wow. Couldn't get, the, couldn't get the... So this was about the early 80s, late 70s? Uh, early 80s, yeah. Yeah. Around the 80 to 82. 
Yeah, because I could imagine a robotic head around those times. Yeah. And I knew, yeah, Godzilla kind of had a resurgence at that time. As a kid, I remember. Oh, wow. This fascinating. And we are coming up to our hour. So okay. we want to... Let's uh, do this let's, again. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, sir. I mean, it was an absolute pleasure uh, speaking awesome. with you. I know. Like I said, I, I've, I've said this when we when I was saying that I need to have you on the show. I could talk to you for a whole day. If you invited me to your art class, you made a mistake, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I'll pay for dinner. But, <laughs> oh, cool. but again, sir, it was uh, an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you. And boy, it was, it was great for me to talk to a group of people that are so knowledgeable about uh, not only my work, but about masters. You guys have all had great questions. <laughs> you made me work a little bit. It was great. <laughs> we hope to uh, see you again. Are you going to be at any uh, Comic Cons or uh, any appearances coming up? Let's see. So far for next year, I've lined up San Diego Comic Fest in March. Uh, I always do Wonderfest in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I always do Comic-Con International in San Diego. And I always do Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia. And I always do MondoCon in Texas. Wow. And you don't come up to New York for New York Comic-Con. They haven't invited me. If they'll invite me, I probably would. Uh, I was just in Baltimore just a few weeks ago. That that's was my last East Coast show for. I'll, I'll put a bug in the ear of uh, of the Seattle Comic Con. Oh, and cool. I'll do oh, it for Seattle. New York. All right, uh, I'd love it. Oh, oh, and we got to get you in El Paso. Uh, El Paso Comic Con guys, come on. Yeah. And uh, well, of course, we our favorite con. Power Con. Yeah, we oh, got to yeah, get PowerCon. you in Power Con. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was such a pleasure. To- I got to say, it was such a pleasure having him at PowerCon. I mean, I enjoyed, you know, interviewing you and uh, talking to you. And again, keep grabbing your artwork. I just kept going through it like, I want this, I want this, I want this. <laughs> you know? It was well, good to see Meg again, too. Meg was, I thought she was great at Yeah, she was a ball of energy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, sir. We enjoyed you. Uh, hopefully, again, our paths will cross again. Okay. And uh, again, if we could, uh, if anybody wants to pick up any of your uh, books. Oh, my website is www.williamstout.com. I've got most of them all on websites shop, including right. uh, Fantastic Worlds, the big retrospective rare, but also. Awesome. And, and Fast, Fantastic World does have two pages of costume. Thank you very much. And uh, we are sure to be checking that out. Thank you for joining us, sir. Okay. Hey, thanks, guys. See you next time. Thank you. Thank right. you. Yeah, okay. Thank you, sir. He was a really, really interesting person to talk to. Wow. Yeah. Again, I could, I could talk to him all day. I just, I, I will take his class. Now he invited me. I'm going to take his class. I guess all the right. next time we're out in California, we have to make sure we're there a couple of extra days. Yeah. <laughs> it would be fun uh, if somebody had the money to offer to commission him to design more of the you know, movie versions of other Masses of the Universe uh, characters just for fun. Yeah, but it would be worth it to see what his take on Trapjaw would be. Yeah. He's the or one Bato that out of all of them I'd be very curious about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, or imagine him doing, like, the core good guys, the core bad guys. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Actually, oh. many faces would be up there, too. I would, oh, yeah. I would think he would be yeah. an interesting one for him to, to try. <laughs> or a challenge I would that give him would be Ram... Ordak would be amazing. Yeah. A challenge I would give him would be Ram Man. Yeah, Ram Man. Ram Man. Oh, man. Just to see what he would do with Ram Man. Okay. I'm sure Tyrannosaurus Rex would be, like, super easy for him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, then then you you just go, here's a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and Ram Man's riding him. Go. There you (laughs) go. Power of Grayskull. That would be amazing. Oh, I I would love it. I always enjoy seeing him uh, do a Preternia style one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Hero and Eldor. Uh, I could just imagine him doing Snake Man. Uh, well, I could just imagine his whole him doing the whole line. It would mm-hmm. just be astounding. Uh, well, d- just hearing his take on all that, I would be interested in just hearing how he viewed the movie a little bit more. Like if if we had more time, because. It sounds like Conan to him was like a separate thing, whereas Conan for some people kind of straddles 
into Masters a little bit, and he looked at it in one way and Masters in another and all that kind of stuff. And his bio ideas, I was like, yeah, I didn't expect that kind of depth to it. That was amazing to hear. And I'm sure he could give us a lot of insights into why there hasn't been a, a new Masters of the Universe movie since the 87 one. Well, if if we ever get to talk to him again, that would be where I would want to talk about it. Like, well, mm-hmm. what would you what would you do if you were on the new movie? What would what would you make yeah. different from what you've already accomplished on this to make it its own thing now? You know, yeah. Or like a seat, like his idea of a sequel, that sort of thing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I would love to uh, have him back as a guest sometime. He was amazing. Yeah, yeah, let's call him back. Talk to him more. Yeah, let's <laughs> Part two, here we go. We got follow-ups. No. Uh, you know, he's such a nice guy. He would. He would. I would like to thank William Stout for joining us this evening. Also... Just a reminder, if you want to keep up to date with all your Masters of the Universe news, please check out He-Man.org. And remember, you can always get your Masters of the Universe toys with Super 7. And I don't know how many of you saw, but the WWE of Eternia has hit store shelves now. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this Council of the First Ones. And I wish you a good journey. This is Renee. Be sure to check out all the latest nerd news on Nerds on a Couch. Thank you to William Stout for joining us. want to thank you all, and have a good journey. And this is David Clark, owner of adultcollector.org. Please check out the uh, Masters of the Universe Origins fans group on Facebook. And uh, thank you again for having me on here, and good journey. This is Master Rex. I'd like to thank you all for having me again. It was wonderful to be here for the William Stout interview. I wish everyone a good journey. And this is Sean Scavarna, and you can find me on Facebook at October Sun Art. I'd like to thank uh, William Stout for that amazing interview. It was amazing to get to hear all that in, uh, information. And I'm really sad I missed him at Baltimore Comic Con because I couldn't make it this year. But uh, <laughs> other than that, yeah, uh, thanks again. And thanks for having me again, guys, for the council, and good journey. This has been a Nerds on the Couch production in association with adultcollector.org. This has been a Nerds on the Couch production in association with adultcollector.org.